The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. What's up, everybody? Something very serious we need to start the show with, and that is. For the last two days, I've forgotten to count how many off-season shows we're into now. So here at the start of this Wednesday, July the 7th episode, 7-7, lucky 7-7, we're going to figure this out again. May the 16th was the end of the regular season. So we had two weeks left in May, basically five through June in the first week of July. And so this now is the middle of the 8th week of the fantasy offseason. This is episode 38 since the fantasy regular season concluded. Before you know it, we'll be in the 40s. Before you know it, we'll be on ramp-up time. And that is pretty damn sweet. I hope many of you checked out Fantasy NFL today that we promoted on yesterday's podcast. I'm going to continue to do so today. Two big things to promo involving uh, on the podcast front. Three, actually. Um, and three and a half, if you want to count me shouting out William Harris and the All Rookie Podcast. New episode dropping of that one today. The Dynasty show we debuted here at Hoop Ball. Punt intended. They have their Dynasty Rankings show that dropped yesterday. And haven't really had a chance. This is sort of getting overshadowed in a lot of other stuff, but... Uh, I don't want them to feel like they're getting aced out on all of this. The Hoop Ball Heat show is all new. Luke and Ben, Luke Weber, Ben Tovia, have uh, grabbed the reins on a pre-existing podcast, and they have resurrected it. They pulled the Heat cast back from the dead. And so that show, while it's not a brand new podcast, it is for all intents and purposes a brand new podcast that uh, you can follow at Hoopball Heat. So there's all sorts of stuff going on right now. But again, the one that I am, I'm just so enthused. I'm out of my mind excited that Hoopball has NFL fantasy coverage happening right now. Anthony Germain, I'm incredibly grateful and also very excited for him. He is at Talking Sunday on Twitter. We'll probably have him on the podcast at some point just to tell me something about the NFL. I won't know enough to check him on it. Uh, but today, they've got the Baltimore Ravens season preview from a fantasy standpoint. They did the Steelers yesterday, back on Monday. His first show was uh, just a, sort of a general overview. So that, again, is Fantasy NFL Today. I'm hoping at least some of you guys play fantasy football. I bet a lot of you do, actually. I personally don't. But who cares? If you do, great. We have a show for you now that we didn't before. Trust us, we're hoopball. Today on Fantasy NBA Today, this show, I'm your host, Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Dan Bespris. Hoopball, at Hoopball Tweets or at Hoopball Fantasy, hoop-ball.com. There's all this stuff that I guess you need to know on that front. We will be reviewing Game 1 of the NBA Finals and also breaking down the next team in our continuing coverage, which is the Minnesota Timberwolves. Actually, again, I remain super excited 
about the Northwest Division. We talked about the Blazers on Monday's show, the uh, July 5th holiday episode. I just I think there's a lot to be had in the Northwest Division. And the Wolves actually are, are sort of straightforward because a lot of their contracts are locked into place. But we'll break them down here in just a few moments. Want to thank Adam King again for yesterday's show. Hope you guys enjoyed that one. That was a lot of fun. And then from a final standpoint, the Suns take a one to nothing lead on the Milwaukee Bucks, 118-105 the final. Giannis did play, and we got part of our handicap right, which isn't great because that means we lose the VIG overall. I told you guys if I, I thought if Giannis played that the Suns would cover the lower number because certainly when he got ruled in, the number came down. I thought it would drop as far as three. It only came down to four off of six. So the, uh, I guess we can assume that the odds makers were kind of splitting the difference a little bit with him as a game time call. We now know going into tomorrow with Phoenix as a five and a half point favorite, that's actually a pretty big number and adjusted up based on what we saw happening in yesterday's ball game. And then the logical next question is, well, what did we see happen in yesterday's ball game? First, we saw Giannis play and played relatively well. 20 points, 17 rebounds, 4 assists, 2 steals, a block, missed a bunch of free throws, which has kind of been the MO for him. But what continues to plague the Bucks and Giannis when he does play is that his assists in the playoffs are always going to be harder to come by. Not necessarily higher or lower from just a, you know what happens on a game-to-game basis, because it's not a massive drop-off. He is averaging five assists in the postseason. He was averaging six during the regular season. What I think is fantasy, well, reality-relevant, first of all, he's actually been a far worse free-throw shooter in his postseason runs than he has been lately during the regular season. I don't know if that's a fatigue thing, a stress thing, whatever, He's also shot the three ball much worse in the postseason than he did during the regular season. He's just 19% from downtown. And it's really rough because he's not being guarded out there. These are wide open 19 percenters, which makes you feel like, okay, well, yes, there's probably a, a hot and cold element to it. But he's also basically abandoned the three-pointer, which is good and bad for what the Bucks are trying to do. It's good because if you're going to shoot 19%, please stop. Please stop shooting the three ball. You're like a 60 to 65% two-point type of guy. Take a shot where the effective field goal percentage is way, way higher. But also, it means defenses know what they're doing. They pushed him to the outside, and there are stretches where he takes what the defense gives him easily, and that's, unfortunately, that's too easy. So it's good that he's not doing a thing that he stinks at. It's bad that it continues to be a thing that he stinks at. And what we talked about on yesterday's podcast, I think, is still pretty relevant, which is when Giannis is healthy and playing, the Bucks are actually a more simplistic offensive team. There's less they do over the course of 48 minutes. There are certain things Giannis can do that no one else can in space in particular, and sometimes even in the half court. But from a defensive standpoint, you know what you're doing, and you can just do it every time, over and over again. And it generally works. Drew Holiday had a rough ball game, 
Presumably, he'll be better in the next one. Brooke Lopez continues to be pretty good, actually, in the playoffs. Middleton was fine. I wouldn't call him spectacular. He was pretty damn good. You'll take that. And at the end of the day, Giannis was basically the only buck who got fouled in the ballgame, which again tells you the Bucks need to get easier looks. They got to get to the rim more often. Not easy when teams are packing the paint against you. Conversely, on the Phoenix side, they got pretty much what they wanted. Devin Booker was slowed down by a Bucks team that does actually have pretty good matchups for him. Drew Holiday is a terrific one-on-one defender, which is basically where Devin is most effective. He'll, he'll isolate people, and that's not a good matchup. Chris Middleton is a pretty damn good defender. Booker probably has a little bit of an edge there, but Middleton has size, so that's going to slow him down a little bit. As we also talked about on yesterday's podcast, nobody's slowing down Chris Paul. He's too damn smart. He's a step ahead. It's, it's the Chris Paul, LeBron... Those are basically the guys in the NBA right now that are a step in front of everyone that they're playing against. They just, they solve the other team. Nikola Jokic actually probably falls into that realm. Although his lack of speed makes it a little harder for him to do all the different things. As it turns out, Jokic is just sort of, there's basically nothing you can do. He's going to get whatever shot he wants because he's a giant dude and he'll... He'll get the ball generally where he wants because of pick-and-roll itch opportunities. There are... There's no one else. There's no one else. There's no one else that can figure out the game the way that LeBron James and Chris Paul can figure out the game. I know that Russell Westbrook and James Harden and Trey Young and Draymond Green, these guys, these guys all average more assists on the year than Paul and LeBron. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about just from a nuts and bolts who sees the game and can just solve it like a puzzle. It's those two guys. If Chris Paul has a bad game, that's because of Chris Paul. He's been incredible. He really has. He's not the MVP from the regular season. I don't I don't want to hear it. He has made his team a hell a whole hell of a lot better but he's not the MVP. He probably is of the postseason. I don't, I, I mean, I, I, I don't see how he isn't with as incredible as he's been after getting healthy towards the end of that first round. Lakers' sons would have been a, a really interesting series if both Chris Paul and AD were just 100% healthy throughout because CP3 was out, was not good for a couple of games, and then he Seemed like he pretty much got better. Anthony Davis was never very good in that series. He had like one good game. LeBron wasn't fully healthy. That would have been a fun one. You almost had your Western Conference Finals in the first round. Although if Kawhi was healthy, then that would have been a really good series also. But the Suns pretty much get what they want on offense. The Bucks, for all intents and purposes, are actually one of the better teams in the league if you were going to try to slow down all of the other stuff that Phoenix tries to do. They limited Mikael Bridges. Uh, DeAndre Ayton had a really good ball game. Only 10 shots, but a really good ball game. Just very efficient. Again, limited Devin Booker. Dario Sharch, by the way, torn ACL, so he's out for a year, basically. Um, you'll probably see a little bit more Frank Kaminsky, although I, I think they'll be more inclined to go a little bit smaller. The Bucks have the weapons, the tools, to deal with what the Suns do. The problem is that Phoenix is so damn disciplined, 
and they are so good in the half court that if they control the tempo even a little bit, it's game over. To the Bucks' credit, they did kind of speed this game up a little bit. Each team had about 110, roughly. Um, yeah, about 110, roughly, possessions in the ball game. Uh, as it turned out, the total did go over ever so slightly because the Suns overachieved by a tiny bit more than the Bucks underachieved. The Bucks underachieving mostly because they missed their very few free throws. The Suns overachieving mostly because they made pretty much all of their pretty normal amount of free throws. They took 26, slightly more than average, but pretty close. And they only missed one. So, yeah, I mean, you're you're probably not going to lose a game. You hit 25 out of 26 free throws if you're shooting pretty close to the same percentage as your opposition. This is going to be a tight series. The fact that Phoenix was in control of this ballgame pretty much from the outset, I think, belies the fact that it's going to be a good one. Giannis will probably be better as the series goes on, provided his knee continues to slowly get better. Drew Holiday will likely be better as the series goes on. Devin Booker probably plays... There will be one game in here where he goes full flamethrower, and the Suns will win that one. Chris Paul is great, probably won't be quite this awesome every ball game. And then the Suns, they're a good free throw shooting but team, but nobody shoots 96% for uh, a series. So that'll come back to earth a little bit as well. So as I look at this next ball game, and the total was actually pretty tight to where it ended up. It jumped when Giannis was ruled in from 219 up to about 221, and then was bet down leading up to the ball game, and then it went over. Uh, just by a little bit, it was mostly because of that monster third quarter or this game. I mean, effectively, this game was right on the money. It ended within one possession of the total, which to me says the total was right. Looking at game two, they left the total the same. 220 and a half, uh, Suns favored by five and a half. I think the Bucks play this one tighter. I'm a little reticent because I don't know quite how healthy Giannis is going to get every two days that's what we're contending with here. And then they've got two days off before they go to Milwaukee. So that's a good opportunity for him to get his health a little bit in better shape. On the 220 and a half, I, I, I would lean to the under because I think as the series goes, the teams start to find each, figure each other out a little bit. But they were pretty well rested going into game one. So I don't think fatigue is going to be the big factor in game two. Milwaukee probably covers game two and then you talk about sort of the correlation between the way the game plays out and the way the total plays out bucks probably play this one tighter most likely because they're slightly better on offense than 105 points and you can you can play whatever games you want to play there the bucks in the postseason so far but for a couple of games where they just kind of vanished like they had that 88 point game against atlanta most of the games milwaukee's played they want to get this thing moving. They want to get it up around 110 possessions in the ballgame because they are very efficient offensively and because they're better when they're not slowing the game down. They're better when things are moving. We've talked about this a lot, the get-it-and-go offense. Someone box out, Giannis get the rebound, off you go. That speeds the game up. That gets you to that 110 possessions. Look, like yesterday's game from a speed standpoint probably favored Milwaukee. But Phoenix was just better at getting what they wanted to get and getting fouled, frankly, because the teams both took 88 shots. Bucks had a few extra turnovers, but also out-rebounded the Suns by four. 
Like, if you're if you ignore free throws, this is basically a tie ball game. Phoenix got 25 points on free throws. Uh, Bucks got nine. So Milwaukee actually wins this game if the free throw battle was removed from it because they hit more three-pointers. Field goal percent was about the same. This is a much tighter series than a 13-point final would indicate. I like Milwaukee in tomorrow's ballgame. I know we did this, this handicap a little bit early. That's fine. We just won't have to do it on tomorrow's show. We can rehash it a little bit if we get some more information on health or whatever. And then from a total standpoint, I guess you probably have to look at the over, assuming the Bucks get over 110 points, which is what they'll need to do to win or cover, and assume Phoenix gets back into that same neck of the woods. That puts you in the 220 range. I don't really care for the total. I think it's relatively accurate. We told you about 220 combined possessions. 220 and a half is the number. If you think their offenses come to play slightly more than yesterday's ball game, you look at the over. Uh, so Bucks and over, I think, are tied together a little bit. But you know, what if what if Chris Paul just doesn't have great as great a shooting night? All these things can happen. You bet on. When you're handicapping a game, you're betting on things that are more likely than not to occur. Occur, and and Chris Paul is more likely than not to have a good ball game. I think the Bucks are more likely than not to play a little bit better offensively in game two because the Suns aren't really going to do much against them that they haven't seen already. They might be a little better at it than say the Hawks. Slightly better personnel than the Nets, who actually were quite good at doing that stuff to Milwaukee. Nets had, uh, Nets had the better personnel, but um, didn't have the, the rim protection. The Hawks had the rim protection, but maybe not the best personnel. Suns probably have the best combination of them. So they have certainly the best shot of anybody we've seen so far, other than a healthy Brooklyn Nets team, of toppling Milwaukee, as we, we saw with their win yesterday, Phoenix did. Um, but I don't think Milwaukee's seeing anything wildly new just sort of different faces doing the same general stuff so i i think milwaukee comes with a plan i think they execute a little better i think you see Giannis a little bit healthier every ball game i lean to the bucks in tomorrow's contest let's talk about the minnesota timberwolves by the way if you're going to place a bet on this game i would suggest you do so with our buddies over at mybookie.ag you guys know the drill by now use promo code Hoopball, when you sign up, H-O-O-P-B-A-L-L, that unlocks various deposit match bonuses when you make your first deposit at mybookie.ag. With football coming up, I'm sure there'll be some odds boost stuff, so definitely get your account going before then. And if you want some cash from Hoopball to get things started, let me know. Also, by the way, let me know if you want to start a podcast. We seem to be doing a lot of that these days, and I'd love to work with you. You got to want to make something special, though. This is not a screw around. Whatever. Minnesota Timberwolves. Kind of a fun team at the end of the year. I know, I know. If you look at the overall standings, that doesn't really make sense. They were 23 and 49. They were third from the bottom in the Western Conference. But, but, they actually finished the year relatively strong, frankly, to their detriment. They could have been behind the Thunder, behind the Rockets. Well, probably not behind the Rockets, but they certainly could have been worse than the Thunder if they had tanked even a little bit. But the Wolves were ready to say, it's time for us to begin to try to win a couple of ball games. And it's cool, it's hip to be square, because 
the Timberwolves basically have every relevant player on the team under contract for next year. And basically every relevant player on the team under contract for the following year. So the core of this Minnesota team is largely intact for multiple seasons yet to come. Cat, three years still left on his deal. D'Lo, two more. Beasley, two more and a team option. Anthony Edwards, who was a rookie this last year, so one more and then two team options. And if you want to go farther down the list, Jarrett Culver has a year and a team option left. Juancho Hernan Gomez has a year and then a non-guaranteed additional year. Josh Okoge, one more year. Jaden McDaniels, a year and two team options. Jared Vanderbilt is off the books, as is uh, the big boss. Boss man? What, what, what's his nickname? The boss? Ed Davis? I think that's Bruce Springsteen. He's off the books as well. But who really cares? The Wolves can go out and find a backup center if they have to. What's important for us, from a fantasy standpoint, is that the Wolves, we already know what they'll be doing next year. And it's great to know. First of all, I think it's very important to look at the last couple months of the season. Namely, like the last six to eight weeks of basketball this year. Something around their last 20 games or so. Over that stretch, Cat was number 32 on a per-game basis in nine category leagues. 25 points, 10 boards, 5 assists, under a steal, half a block, 2.63 pointers, 47% from the field, 84% at the free throw line. Does that mean that Carl Anthony Towns could potentially be a draft day value next year? Or was this a sign that with help around him, Cat might not be a top five guy anymore. Is that a possibility? 49% from the field for Cat is basically a career low. If you exclude a a short postseason blitz, it's a career low for a regular season. Your follow-up question might be, Dan, did he take more three-pointers? No. He actually took one and a half fewer three-pointers this year than last season. His number of shots will likely be lower with a healthy D'Angelo Russell and a healthy Anthony Edwards and a healthy Malik Beasley. He should still be in the 18-shot range, but the odds of him getting up to that number or or even over it are pretty much not non-existent. Additionally, 1.1 blocks per game, career 1.4. Is that something that suffers or... Is that something that rebounds on a team that is perhaps playing with a greater purpose? I'll tell you this, when Minnesota was playing well down the stretch, he wasn't blocking shots. Is that because guys on this team were playing better position defense? It's quite possible. Cat's still a terrific foul shooter. That'll be a plus. Field goal percent, you could argue maybe that does creep back into the 50-51% range. It seems reasonable because his overall shot profile hasn't really changed all that much. Rebounds are down because other guys on the team are capable, like a Jared Vanderbilt, if they played him, although those that's a tough matchup when both of those guys are attacking the rim at the same time. Uh, Jaden McDaniels also kind of falls into that same bucket. Although I think they 
think they played a bit more McDaniels uh, down the stretch than Vanderbilt because McDaniels can space the floor a tiny bit more, and, and Vanderbilt is, is exclusively right in front of the rim. But regardless, those two guys can rebound a little bit, Vanderbilt more so. And as you, as you look over the numbers, a lot of it screams that Cat might be more like an end-of-the-first-round guy as opposed to beginning of it. He was uh, number 37 over those last 20 games was Anthony Edwards. 47% from the field, 77 at the free throw line, 23 points, 5.5 rebounds, 4 assists, 1.4 steals, 0.7 blocks, and 3 three-pointers per ball game. He's a guy that kind of figured it out as the year went on. He was a great grab in points leagues where you could just sort of deal with the awful field goal percent for large chunks of the year before he began to figure out how to hit a fading jumper. I mean, we're, we're legitimately talking about a kid in Anthony Edwards who took shots where he was fading and then the ball just missed in that direction. He hadn't figured out how to adjust for the fade. Well, he started to, didn't he? There's still a bunch of stuff that Edwards can do year over year to improve on his fantasy game as well. Free throw percent probably gets better as he gets older in the NBA. Scoring, I don't know. I mean, it's 17 and some odd shots a game. I don't see how that number really ticks up very much. Uh, steals was really was better for him down the stretch than it was over the entirety of the year. He probably gets a little bit overdrafted because he scores so much. And, again, it's this same stuff that keeps creeping in because a lot of what he did came when other guys were out. That was where he kind of found his footing. When this team is fully healthy, he's probably, like Cat, going to be somewhere between 16 and 18 shots per ballgame. Over the last 20 games, number 103 was Ricky Rubio, although, again... Worth noting that D'Angelo Russell was not ramped up to full speed over that stretch. I am not touching Ricky Rubio with a 10-foot pole this coming year, even though they may play Rubio and D'Lo at the same time. There's just not enough there. And if you, I mean, if you really want to pare down to the very end of the regular season, when D'Angelo Russell was playing 31 minutes a game that last two weeks, Rubio was just outside the top 100 there as well. There's just not enough. There's not enough... As uh, our founder, Brewski, likes to say, there's just not enough meat on that bone. We'll come back to D'Angelo Russell in just a moment. I want to talk about the peripheral guys for a minute. Over those last 20 games or so, the peripheral guys didn't play nearly enough minutes to be fantasy relevant. The closest one we got, and there's sort of two stories here. Jaden McDaniels played the most minutes of those other guys, but he wasn't able to do anything with them because he's not going to take any shots and he doesn't rebound a ton, not enough to be a positive there. Steals and blocks are okay, but really, again, not a massive positive in any way. And then Jared Vanderbilt was a terrible fit alongside Cat because both those guys were rim runners in transition and there wasn't any spacing. And you, you saw these transition plays where Ricky Rubio was trying to shovel it to someone under the basket and two teammates are fighting over the basketball. So that's not happening either. I truly believe that the closest thing you've got to a flyer type of pick on this team is, uh, well, I would have said Jarrett Culver if he wasn't badly hurt, but he's not going to get enough minutes coming back. It's Nas Reed in a weird twist. 
Nas Reed has two more non-guaranteed years on his deal, and I'm sure that they'll keep him because he was actually really, really good on a per-minute basis this year. He was inside the top 200 in only about 19 minutes a game. It's not certainly not Nerlens Noel or Rashawn Holmes level good, but those rare games where Nas Reed saw a few extra minutes, you could see the outlines of a guy where if Cat misses a game here and there and Reed gets 26, 27 minutes, even for a couple of days, he's fantasy relevant, but not a guy you need to be drafting. And the last name I want to talk about is D'Angelo Russell. I saved him for last because I think it probably requires the longest breakdown. We didn't really get to see D'Lo this year, but for maybe three weeks at the end of the season, where he kind of looked like himself again. And even then, the shot wasn't truly falling, but at least the usage was up there where he was taking 16 shots a game over those last two or three weeks. Average about 19 points, seven assists, about three three-pointers, one and a half steals on just brutal percentages, and that put him in the 70 range. Over D'Angelo Russell's career, he's never really been a very good foul shooter. He's been disappointing as a guard from the free throw line. When you compare it to sort of like the overall field, is only been a very small net negative but as a guard, those are the guys you're hoping that actually give your field goal or your free throw percent a little bit of a bump. And unfortunately, he doesn't. His field goal percent has always been crap. 42% for his career, and he hasn't really strayed off of that all that much. He's on a team where he's not going to have to do as much as he has on teams in the past. The Warriors, where everyone hurt last year. A couple years ago in Brooklyn, when everyone was hurt and he took 19 shots a game. The 16-some-odd, 16-17, in Minnesota is probably a more reasonable number, and that does get him somewhat close to 20 points per game. Like, you could see him pushing that area, and you could see him pushing six, seven assists a game because he is the ball handler on that team uh, because Ricky Rubio doesn't have a shot, and so you can use Ricky to kind of set things up and and to get the offense in gear, but ultimately D'Angelo Russell is your more effective offensive weapon. He's always been an okay steals guy, nothing crazy, like 1.3-ish per 36 for his career, something in that neck of the woods, so nothing like pretty decent, 1.3, 1.4, so you can expect over one a game next year the turnovers will be relatively high and I think you probably have to just assume he's going to hurt you in both percentages the problem with D'Angelo Russell is that he is perpetually overdrafted because of people who punt free throw percent and because of eight category leagues that get mushed into the data with nine category leagues and he's a net negative in both of those two categories the two that get weighted the least I would argue in fantasy draft boards, free throw percent. I mean, if free throw percent was weighted properly, Giannis, Luca, Ben Simmons, these guys would see massive drop-offs, but it's just not. And then turnovers, well, I mean, they're weighted properly, but the problem is that data from all category leagues sort of gets pushed together. So as much as D'Angelo Russell had a down season, and all of those indicators would say, well, like, he was terrible for most of the year, he looked okay for the last two or three weeks, people that drafted him are going to be annoyed, 
he's probably still going to be overdrafted because he scores and assists and because people don't care that he hurts your free throw percent and your total turnover number. And it it kills me. It eats me up inside that he's not going to be a draft day value because he should have been one. He should have been one with as poorly as he played and as hurt as he was for almost all of this season. Like 18, 17 weeks this year, he just wasn't good. But he's a point guard who scores and assists, and he's bad in the categories that nobody pays attention to. He could be terrible year after year after year, and no one would care. I need to come up with a name for this phenomenon. I don't have one, but it might get named after D'Lo because he doesn't have the superstar power of a Giannis or a Luka to overwhelm some of the bad stuff he's doing. What does it all mean? What does it all mean, man? We got to put it all together here with Minnesota. And what it all means is that, well, we didn't even talk about Malik Beasley, who, honestly, I would basically avoid Beasley. I know that sucks because he was number 89 this year. But he did almost all of his damage while D'Angelo Russell was out and before Anthony Edwards had his footing. So Beasley, who took 16 points, shoot two shots per game this year. That number's going to take a pretty significant nosedive, probably down to like 14. And if his shots go down by 15%, his value pretty much across the board goes down by 15%. Because his value is tied up in scoring, threes, free throw percent. You lose all three of those things as his number of shots and attempts goes down. Rebounds, assists, all of that stuff, Probably, maybe rebounds stays relatively steady. But assists probably goes down, maybe a little bit, not much. He's only a 2.4, but every little bit matters. I don't think Beasley finishes next year inside the top 100 on a per-game basis. And on top of all this other stuff, D'Lo, not durable. Rubio, not durable. Beasley, Probably durable, but we don't even really know. Anthony Edwards, probably durable because he's so damn young, but so much hype that there's no way he's a draft day value. What does that leave us? That leaves us with the outside possibility that Carl Anthony Towns falls in drafts enough that he ends up where he probably should be anyway on a team that has other talent around him, which is top 10 instead of top 3. Maybe more like top eight. Ten might be a little bit too lenient with the rankings there. But I don't think he's top three anymore. And I don't think that there's really much of a chance he ends up in the top three. I do think that he's more durable this coming season. I think we see Cat sort of bounce back to the way he used to be. COVID was obviously just such a massive, massive weight emotionally on Cat. He's been dinged up physically. It was a double whammy he's probably due for a better performance next year especially on a team that's actually going to be trying to make a run at the eighth seed in the western conference whether they get there or not is anybody's guess they probably won't but they're going to try they're going to try for more than the first three weeks next year provided they don't lose cat for the middle half of the season again i can't believe that that's it but i almost don't see anyone else on this roster that has a chance to get underdrafted. I wish it was D'Angelo Russell, but it won't be. It definitely won't be Anthony Edwards. Beasley's value takes a nosedive, so he'll probably get overdrafted. 
So where does that leave us? Leaves us with maybe Cat falls to like eight or nine, and then you probably just have to take him. But he probably also doesn't because he's still Cat and because people are going to look at last year and not realize that a lot of his drop-off was usage-related. A lot of it was also blocks-related. When a guy averaging 1.2 blocks per game, that gets cut in half, that's a really big deal. In a full season, that's basically like 40 blocks off the ledger. That's huge. We need 40 blocks. Think, look at your, Go back to your Roto League and figure out where you'd be if you had 40 blocks more or less at the end of your season. It probably shifts you by two to three points in each direction. That's a big deal. But also, 17.5 shots for Cat this year, 10.5 rebounds. All of this stuff is at risk of falling off. So as much as I love a bunch of trailblazers on our Monday show, guys that are perennially underdrafted, I think the Wolves are going to have a bunch of guys that are overdrafted this coming year. Bum, 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 bum. And maybe some of them will suck enough where next season, 2022 to 23, they will be post-type guys. Like maybe Anthony Edwards takes a step back. I doubt it, but maybe. And uh, and then, but probably not. He's just going to get drafted super high probably every year for the next 15 seasons. Get used to it. I am Dan Bespris for Fantasy NBA Today. We'll continue our looping tour of the Northwest with, I think... Denver? I think Denver is the next northernmost team as we sort of like, I'm picturing the map of the U.S. in my head. I don't know if I'm even getting it right, but I went from Portland and I cut across the northern edges to Minnesota. Now we'll kind of come back down southwest a little bit to Denver, then Utah, then OKC. We'll, we'll turn this thing into a weird little, it's almost like a question mark shape, tipped. Check out all of our new podcasts, everybody. You guys will be happy you did. Follow me on Twitter, at Dan Bespris. Hit me up if you have any questions. If you're signing up for my book, you or want to start a podcast. This is a Hoopball presentation. Back at you tomorrow. So long. This has been a Hoopball presentation.